Well, hello and good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good? Guys, we got snow outside and it's Christmas. It's all coming together. It's a good thing. Uh, if it is your first time with us, hello. My name is Cooper Young. Uh, I get to serve as the assistant pastor here at Crossroads. And truthfully, if you are a guest, if it's your first time, if you're here because the kids are here, we are so glad that you're here, okay? We hope that you feel very welcomed and accepted. If you're joining online, wherever you may be, uh, we're glad that you could be doing that as well. But Christmas is in the air. It is the Christmas season. And if I can be honest, I got to experience my own little Christmas miracle this past week. It was awesome, okay? So uh, I got here about a year and a half ago, and like two months in, I had this idea, and it just never came to fruition, okay? It just was not working out at all, and that was, if you know, there's a big spruce tree out by the community center, okay? I'm like, that should be decorated for Christmas. Why don't we decorate that for Christmas? Well, it turns out it's because it's huge, all right, and it's hard to decorate, and you need a lot of lights, okay? And so um, this year, we tried our best, but it just didn't seem like it was going to work out. And then Carrie Shanahan asked Matt Karowich. And then Wednesday morning, if you remember, it was super rainy and pouring, uh, pouring outside. But you might not notice about Matt, but he like climbs trees for a living, okay? He's like a squirrel. He just kind of like goes up to the top really fast. It's amazing. And then he, he decorated the whole tree. There's Caleb trying to get hit in traffic with some lights on. It was a beautiful scene. There was nothing more Christmassy than that. And so uh, that was really great. So if you see Matt, tell him great job. If you haven't seen it at night, drive by. It looks really good. So uh, just so thankful for all of the hard work, both in the lobby and just all around uh, the campus for people who have done uh, to make it look so good. Because this is the time of year when people can come uh, to church maybe for the one time. And so it's really nice that we get to put our best foot forward. So uh, it's a great thing. So thank you to everyone. And uh, a lot of times at Christmas, what do people try and do? People try and get their families together, right? People try and get their families together, and that can bring up a lot of emotions, yeah? Anyone? Okay, well, here, I'll, okay, show of hands, I'm going to ask you a question, and it's going to require a bit of vulnerability and honesty on your part, on our part, the whole thing, okay? So here we go. Here's the question. The question is, how many people would say they have a messy family? Anyone? I got two hands up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, if you, yeah, look around, all right? You guys don't think you have anything in common. You all, yeah, we all got messy families, all right? Whether it's your immediate family, your extended family, friends who think they're family, whatever it might be, right? We got some messed up families. And then when you try and get them all together at Christmas or Thanksgiving or the holidays in general, I mean, all the mess just kind of comes to the surface. It's a great thing, right? And we like to be together and we like to spend time with one another. But there are these problems that just become so apparent. And the last time that I talked, uh, it was around Thanksgiving time, right? And we're talking about Thanksgiving. Well, let me tell you this one Thanksgiving story, okay? So, uh, I had five great-grandparents that I actually knew in my time, and I was very thankful for that. But there was one in particular that really kind of like left her mark uh, on like the family before she, she went away, right? Before she passed away. And her name was Gigi Young, okay? Gigi. I didn't know what Gigi meant my whole life growing up. Turns out it means great-grandparent, okay? Gigi, great-grandparent. We get that, okay? So I had like, I thought all of my great-grandparents' names were Gigi. It's not. It was, it was an acronym, and I didn't know that. But, but Gigi young she was great she was 97 years old okay and it was thanksgiving now Gigi young she had this thing where she knew that she had money and she knew that she couldn't take her money with her and she didn't think that anyone else deserved her money and so she would often like buy a new dog or buy a new truck like once a month okay so she would like get a dog and she'd put it in the truck and then she'd drive the truck for a month and then she'd drop the dog off in some field 
and then go get a new truck. And this is what she did, okay? So this is the kind of person she was awesome. And so at her last Thanksgiving, she was like two and a half glasses of brandy in, okay? So this was time for her final like matriarchal charge to the young family. So she gave this legendary speech, okay? We do have the video, but I'm not going to show it. And so, but this is Gigi Young giving that speech, Okay, it was powerful. And um, she goes on this whole thing about how, uh, how awesome her husband was, uh, Gigi Young, the great grandpa Young, and, um, and how he was the man and how he wasn't perfect, but he was a good man, right? And, and throughout their 68 years of marriage, they had no messes. And the whole time that she had been alive, the Young family had had no messes. And so now it was our job to have no messes. And she just kept saying no messes and pointing at us. And like the youngs will not have no messes because we have a good background and you have a good family and we will have no messes. So everybody say, ready? One, two, three. No messes. That's right. That's what, that, that was her whole thing. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, um, I know my family, and uh, there are plenty of messes. Uh, I don't really know what is defined as, or in her book, as a mess, but uh, certainly we have a pretty messy family. I'm sure you feel like you have some messes in your family, and we all have messy families. Why? Because families are made up of messy people. And you get all these messy people together in a family, and it's a huge mess, right? Whether it's your family, my family, our church family, families can get pretty messy. And today, we're going to see that Jesus came from a really messy family. And we wouldn't even celebrate Christmas with our families if it wasn't for Jesus' messy family. So uh, maybe that surprises you. You certainly wouldn't be alone in that. Uh, When the first century church was reading Matthew's gospel, uh, they really got a picture of this. And so it would have surprised them as well. And so uh, one of the most common expressions you hear at this time of the year is, Ho, 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 Merry Christmas, right? And so the title of my message today is No, 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 Christmases, okay? So it's a bit of a reach, but yeah, you get it, you get it. No, Christmas, okay, we got it, okay. So, so today we're in week two of our new series called Receiving Royalty, and we're gonna be starting the book of Matthew. And we're gonna go all the way through the book of Matthew. It's gonna take us 17 weeks. It's gonna take us four series, okay? We're gonna start with the coming of Jesus and his birth, and it's gonna take us all the way to Easter, where you'll have to wait and see. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it. All right, if you want to read ahead, you're welcome to. It's a great story, uh, but we'll talk about it all the way through. And uh, this particular gospel account of Jesus' life was written by Matthew. Now, here's a little bit about Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So he was actually there seeing all this stuff happen. His name was Matthew the tax collector. And this specific gospel account was actually one of the, or not, sorry, one of, the favorite of the first century church. Why was it the favorite? Because it really taught people and emphasized how to follow Jesus as a church, living as a minority group in a majority culture. And it also showed the Jews that they were able to hang on to their Jewish heritage while still being able to welcome Gentiles and all the peoples of the earth into the church. So it's this really powerful book. And we are starting this series with the one that we're doing right now, Receiving Royalty, because as Mick talked about last week, when Jesus came to earth, he was coming as a king that had been long awaited for by his people, whose mission had been promised for even longer. And when he came, he taught the new way that those who consider themselves citizens of his kingdom would act in the world, and it would be much different than anything they could have ever expected. 
just like the way in which he came. So let's look at it together. Now, we're going to be in Matthew 1. And whenever someone gets curious about Christianity or like what Christians believe, they usually go to the Bible, right? And they start reading. And then they read the Bible like you would any book, right? They turn to page 1. And it even starts out with, in the beginning. So you feel like you're on the right track. And then it tells you some stories, and the stories are interesting. And then they are just, they quit by Leviticus, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So typically, if someone asked me, where should I start reading the Bible? I've always told them, start in the book of Matthew and then just read through the New Testament. Well, they start reading in Matthew and immediately they start reading all of these names that they can't pronounce and they get frustrated and they don't even make it 16 verses in before they're confused. So I've stopped that idea. Now I tell them to start in Mark, okay? But the good news for you is I just finished seminary, okay? And there was a class at seminary. Yep. There's a class at seminary. Hold for applause. Okay. Yep. I said, that's fine. I don't need it. I don't need it. There's a class at seminary that taught us how to pronounce every hard name in the Bible. And it was called, that class doesn't exist. Okay, that's not a thing. That's not a real thing. Okay, that's not. Instead, my Old Testament professor told us, if you come to a hard name you don't know how to pronounce, don't try and pronounce it. Just read it as fast as possible and keep going. Okay, so that's what we're going to do right now. Okay, so we're going to start. We're going to be in Matthew 1, verse 1, and we're going to read through 17. It's going to seem like a marathon, so bear with me, but we're doing it. Okay, so here we go. Matthew 1, if you've got a phone, you can pull it out. If not, it'll be up here on the screen. It says this. It says that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, sorry, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerem. Jerem, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Here we go. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations In all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what just happened? Wow, I didn't expect that. That's great. No, it's not good at all, actually, but it doesn't matter. But what just happened? I mean, there was like, seemingly you read that, there's like, there was no information in what just came out of my mouth, and I understand that. Turns out there's actually a ton of information in what I just read, and we could do a whole series just breaking down that genealogy. Now, maybe you have some familiarity with the Old Testament, and you might have recognized some of those names, but 
I kind of need to explain what just happened. And some of you may have questions, and one of those questions may be, what is a genealogy? Like, is that the study of blue ghosts from bottles who grant wishes? No, okay? That's, I'm glad someone laughed. That was good. I was worried about that. And so... Uh, I don't think anyone was actually thinking that, right? But, but a genealogy is a line of descent in someone's family line. So if you're tracing your family back to your ancestors, you use a genealogy. Now, here's the question. Why is Matthew opening his entire book with this? I mean, we read this and we're like, that's a pretty bad introduction to any kind of story. But Matthew was not writing the story to us. His audience was first century Jews, okay? And so they were much more used to, in ancient history, having stories of heroes open and begin with genealogies, okay? Because the way the author would introduce whatever hero was was by describing all of the great, at this time in ancient history, all of the great men that came before this one hero to kind of prove their credibility and their validity before they start out on their quest. Now... Uh, what we need to know is that, the, uh, that this is why before almost every name that you see the expression, the father of, only rules were different back in the day. Because in ancient, when you would put together a genealogy in ancient history, you were allowed to skip generations. Okay, but you weren't allowed to make someone who was like a son the father. So you couldn't screw up the order in that way. You couldn't mix it around, but you could skip. So when it says the father of, that could be someone's grandfather, someone's great-grandfather, someone's great-great-grandfather. And that gave the author a lot of liberty to specifically choose who they wanted to include in their genealogy. So if there was someone who you didn't want in there, you would just kind of skip over them and pretend like it never happened, right? And so Matthew, there's no difference here. He specifically chooses these names to include in the genealogy of Jesus as he describes the royal and legal descent from King David. Except Matthew also does some pretty wild stuff compared to back in the day. We're going to talk about it right now. So the first thing that he does is this thing called numerology, okay? And so in Hebrew literature and in the Bible, numbers have meanings, okay? Certain numbers mean something. So for example, seven is the number of completion, okay? Three is the number of perfection or harmony. So when you see sevens and threes happen in the Bible, usually the author has them there because they have meaning. They're trying to communicate something to you through the numbers they're using. Another thing they would do is they would double, right? Like a double portion was like this great, awesome blessing, okay? And so what we see here is that it's, it's, it's not a coincidence when he, we see that there are three sections of 14 generations, okay? Or three sections of a double portion of seven generations, okay? Or six generations of seven. So it's like, Cooper, what are you talking about? Listen to me. Six generations of seven. So seven is perfect and seven is complete, right? And six is one less than incomplete. So it's just not complete, which means this current generation is the complete of all the complete. Okay, that doesn't mean anything to you, but that's fine. I'm just telling you that's what he's doing because it's, it's pretty cool. Now, here's how he opens the whole thing. He says that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he starts off with his, his most important thing, and that is Jesus being the Messiah. He's trying to prove to all of his audience and his readers that this guy, Jesus, was the Messiah. And that came with some stipulations. And the first was that they had to be a son of David, and they had to be a son of Abraham. Why? 
Good question. Because the Messiah came to fulfill the promises and the covenants that God had made with both Abraham and David. And so, and so Matthew is about to show us how Jesus does that. But what was the Abrahamic covenant? Good question. This is when God promises a land, descendants, and a blessing that would extend through Abraham to all the peoples of the earth. Okay, so that was the Abrahamic covenant. Then there was the Davidic covenant. And that's when God promises a descendant of David to reign on the throne over the people of God. Okay, so... Notice that he's not saying father of, he's saying son of, because he's starting with Jesus, then he's working backwards, and he's highlighting the two most important names that he wants you to see, and it's because of these covenants. So the Messiah who would come and fulfill these covenants would both be a king, and he would also bless all of the nations. Then in the third section, there isn't someone who God has established a covenant with because they are coming out of exile, and instead he finishes with Jesus being the Messiah because in that third section, Jesus is the one who would come and fulfill the covenant and then have a new covenant established with him. So, that's how it's broken up. We got that. Okay, good. I'm just, I'm just, I want you to know this Bible was put together for a reason. Okay, so here we go. Now, by the time Matthew is writing this account of Jesus' life, Jesus has been ascended to heaven for like 50 years, okay? So everything, pretty much everything we talked about in the book of Acts, all of that has happened, right? The church has been per persecuted. It's spread out over the world, and Jesus' impact is being felt Globally, okay, so the church is spreading, but one and uh, one of the most societally groundbreaking and impactful changes that Jesus brought with him was the value that he ascribed to women in the world. Now, before Jesus, listen to me, before Jesus, women didn't have rights, okay, their words meant nothing and they were seen as property. And when Jesus came, he corrected this thinking and made sure that everyone knew that women were valued just as high as anyone else was because they were God's creation. They were his daughters and they were Jesus's sisters just like the men were Jesus's brothers and he died for all of them equally. So Matthew, having been so impacted by Jesus's ministry, does something that no one else did in ancient history. He included women in the genealogy of Jesus. This was crazy, okay? He includes five specifically. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, okay, who we know to be Bathsheba, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This was, this was, no one did this yet, okay? Matthew was the first one. Now, all of these women were heroes in their own sense, both because of their story as well as because they preserved the royal legal line of King David to Jesus. But the ways in which they were heroes was pretty messy, and so we're going to talk about it. Now, when the Jews were picturing their coming king, they expected him to be the most purebred, grade A, uh, clean, distinguished savior, right, ever. Like, this, this was the king of all kings. He, like, his family line should have been spotless. And if you're going to introduce him by his genealogy, surely if that wasn't the case somewhere, then you would skip those parts because of all of the messes that happened. After all, why even be able to skip the generations if not to cover up the ones that you saw as being less than the best? But Matthew doesn't do that. 
not only does he include women in the line, but the ones that he chose, most everyone would have skipped over first. And here's why. So first, we have Tamar, okay? If you don't know the story of Tamar, she was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Now, Judah was the father of one of the original tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah. He had a son, and Tamar married his son, okay? Then the son died. And back in ancient history, if your brother had a widow, you would take them to be your wife. And so then uh, Judah's son's brother takes Tamar to be his wife. Only he wouldn't, he wouldn't give her a child, okay? And so then he dies, and then Judah's wife dies. So Tamar's mother-in-law dies. And so what does Tamar do? Well, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Judah into getting her pregnant. And from there, we have Perez and Zerah. And everyone in the history of Israel would have known this story and would have been like, Matthew, why are you including that mess in Jesus' royal line? We don't need to hear about that. You should have skipped over that one. But Jesus' family was messy, just like your and mine. It was a part of Jesus' story, and so Matthew puts it in there. Then we get this. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Okay, so this is for the first time in history people are getting the mother of in genealogies. And, and Matthew points out Rahab and Ruth. Now, these two both have something in common, and it's something that you should have left out of the genealogy. They're both not Israelites, okay? And so racially and ethnically, this was problematic. Because if your king was coming to be the king of Israel, they better not have any messes like someone who is racially or ethnically less than Israelites in their royal line, because that would be a mess. But Matthew puts it in there anyways, okay? And not only that, but Rahab was also a prostitute herself. She was, she was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. They were not Israelites. This was a problem. It was a mess. Now, finally, we get this. And Jesse, the father of King David, King David. So Matthew is making sure that you and I all both know he is still talking about the royal line of King David, okay? That's what he's talking about. Then he, then he calls him just David, okay? He doesn't call David, and he doesn't refer to him as like the giant slayer or the guy who never lost any battles or, or the good king or the man after God's own heart. No, he says David, who was the father of Solomon. And he doesn't even mention her by name, but he says whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Succinctly pointing out one of the most scandalous and tragic stories in Israel's history. And if you don't know it, this is what happened. David saw Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, bathing on a roof, okay? A roof. And so David then took her, right? And David got her pregnant. While Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, Uriah was off at war, and he was one of David's generals. And so David wanted to cover this up. So he brings Uriah home and has him go be with his wife. Only Uriah wouldn't do it because he felt bad. He didn't think it was right for him to get to be with his wife when all of his soldiers were off fighting. So David gets all frustrated and tries to make matters worse because then he sends Uriah to the front lines where the fighting is the harshest and has Uriah killed. So this story right here, David commits adultery and murder. And Matthew's like, yep, I'm putting that mess in the genealogy. Why is Matthew doing this? This is pretty, this is crazy stuff. So some royal family we have so far. And then finally, he concludes, he concludes the genealogy with this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, 
was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So then why am I bringing up Mary and Joseph? This is like the nativity. This is like one of the best stories ever, right? Like we all love the story. Except at the time, this was a mess, okay? Because Mary was primarily pregnant by God, okay? No one believed that, okay? Everyone who saw this thought this was a mess. And so throughout all of Matthew's genealogy, he is setting up, including these women, these prominent women who were mothers, who, who, who uh, continued on the royal legal line of David to get to the point where he mentions Mary because of how important Mary is to the story of Jesus. And so then he's going to tell us the story of Jesus, okay? So we're going to read the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel, right? So here we go. Here's what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So everyone in Nazareth looked at the parents of Jesus while they were waiting for him to be born and were like, really great, y'all. Okay, first Mary's unfaithful, and now she's pregnant premaritally, and now she's lost her mind, and she's blaming it on God, which is exactly what someone who's caught in a mess is going to try and do. They're just going to try and blame God. Meanwhile, Joseph is too weak and isn't manly enough to just go through with the divorce, and so he's sticking around because he's, I don't know, not smart, right? I mean, Mary deserves to get stoned for this according to the law. Why would Joseph stay with her? And here's the thing. Joseph didn't even believe Mary. No, he didn't at all. Why would he? God has never gotten a woman pregnant before, and he hasn't done it since. Okay, this was a one-time thing, and it was his wife. Why would he believe that? And he didn't until an angel of the Lord came to him and told him this was legit. Good news was, Joseph was faithful enough to believe that angel and then not take advantage of the situation, and he waited even longer to consummate their marriage until Mary had Jesus. So that's all happening. So no one who knew Mary and Joseph were excited for them to have this baby, okay? They all looked at this, and they, they said this was a mess. And then what happens? Then Mary and Joseph end up homeless in Bethlehem, and Mary finally gives birth to her son in like a cave or a stable with barn, barn animals, and like he's just lucky he was born in a stable home, right? I mean, it's, it's not worth it. I don't know why I put him in there. It's not worth it. And so... It was probably gross, right? I mean, there's probably like animal feces everywhere. And just this past week, my dog used the bathroom all over the basement. I clean it up. It's disgusting, right? It's a foul thing. And Jesus was born in this mess. And then Mary lays him in a manger 
This is where animals ate their food. That was a mess. And so Joseph, he's looking at this little baby, right? He's born in a mess. He's born from a mess. And he's born to a mess. And Joseph wasn't even the dad yet. At this point in the story, Jesus is not a part of the legal royal line of King David. So what have we been talking about? And it all comes down to the final seven words of Matthew chapter one. Seven, the number of completion. These last seven words make all the difference. Matthew writes, and he gave him the name Jesus. He being Joseph. Why does that matter? Because in ancient times, when it came to preserving power for kings in their family line, if they didn't have a natural born heir to their throne and they wanted to keep their power, they would have to adopt a son in order to preserve that royal line. And how did you adopt sons, or any child for that matter, back in ancient history? You would give them their name. So, when Jesus looks at Jesus and he gives him the name Jesus, Joseph is adopting him into the legal royal line of King David. That's why this verse makes all the difference in this passage. Therefore, he was the legal father, and this fulfilled the promise that David's throne would be established forever, and that all of the nations would be blessed through Abraham because Jesus was the Messiah. He was the king that all had waited for. But his coming and his kingdom would be unlike anything that anyone expected. His kingdom would be upside down and built on new and different values that the world hadn't seen. His coming was not like that of a king. He came from a mess, a messy family in a messy stable. He didn't come for those who were neat and clean and powerful and had it all together. He came for the broken, the hurting, the weak, and those who found themselves in a mess, living a messy life. And that wouldn't just include the nation of Israel, but all the nations for all of history would be blessed through King Jesus. And that includes all of us too. So then why are our expectations for one another so messed up? Because Matthew's whole point is to show that the coming Messiah, the coming king that the world had waited for, was not what they expected. He was not a ruler who was seeking to be above everyone else, but instead he was a man of the people. One who came and identified with those who were seen as society as lowly and messy. And I think so often when we think about following Jesus as our Savior, we feel like, or maybe we've even been told that before we can, we have to get ourselves cleaned up a bit first. We have to cover up some stuff that we used to do or some stuff that we're still doing. We gotta make sure that no one finds out about this one son or this one sister or this one dad that we have. Or maybe I'll start coming around to some things, but I'm not gonna let anyone else know about what I've done in my past because what would they think of me then? And we end up finding ourselves in really twisted and shallow relationships with one another. We really don't want to share or dig into some of the hurts and the dirt of our past because we're afraid that we might get messy. We're afraid that people won't accept us if they find out about some of our mess. 
And it really messes up our view about who God is and about who Jesus is because instead of seeing him as a heavenly father who sent his son to be our savior, we see him how I saw my Gigi Young wagging his fingers saying, no messes. I don't want any messes in this family. No messes. And that's not God. God sees us in our mess. He sees us in our brokenness and in our sin, and he doesn't condemn us. He came down into our mess to save us, to redeem us, to give us a new life and a fresh start, to take our mess and to turn it into our message. Because when Jesus came as our Savior King, he made a way for us to not be seen by our Father as a mess, but instead because Jesus would go on to die. We would be made clean by his blood so that if we choose to follow Jesus, then we are given a new name by our Father in heaven and we are adopted into his family. And he only sees us as his perfect son or his perfect daughter. Does that mean that we are all of a sudden perfect? No, we are still a mess. Everyone still sees us as a mess. Our family is still a mess and we still mess things up a lot. But when Christ comes into our mess, he can take it, redeem it, and use it for good. That's the message of Christ's mess. And look, a lot of people don't want to come to church, right? Because they don't feel like they have it all together. They feel like they're pretty messy. They feel like they're going to step foot in the door and everyone's going to start judging them. And Christmas is one of those times of the year when people will actually give church a shot. They'll come for that one time. And so here's the question. How are we going to make people feel? Because Jesus didn't wait for the world to get itself cleaned up before he came. He went right into the middle of the mess. And he made people feel loved, seen, heard. And he even lowered himself to serve them. So what are we doing? Like, I hope we never look like a church that looks like they have it all together. Because that's not real. That's fake. And I don't want to be fake. I want to be real. And the reality is, this life is hard. This life is messy. It's filled with sin and sadness. And acting like it isn't just diminishes why Jesus came and was born as a baby in a manger. So let's be real. Let's be loving. Let's follow Jesus into the messiness of life. And if you've never taken that first step in placing your faith in Jesus and believing that he really came to pay the price for your sins so that you could be forgiven, I would encourage you to take that first step today because your mess matters. Jesus died for it. And the message of Christmas is that Jesus came down into our mess to be our Messiah, our Savior, our King. And he is the only King who is worthy to be praised. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. God, we thank you that you are good. God, we thank you that you are loving. God, we thank you that you loved us enough to send your Son, Jesus, down to this earth, into the darkness, into the brokenness, and into the messiness of this life. God, so that he could save us. So that he could become our mess on the cross, God, as his body was broken. 
Lord, paying the price for our sins that we couldn't pay for ourselves. God, thank you that there's nothing that we have to do to earn or, or deserve that gift, that it's a free gift by your grace, God, that you offered in the life of your son so that if we just reach out and grab it, God, that we are given a new life, that we're given a fresh start. God, that you wash us clean of our sins, knowing that this side of heaven, Father, will never be perfect, will never get it right, and, and will probably never stop looking like a mess. But God, we get to cherish the fact that you love us anyways. God, and that you taught us and you showed us how to love one another anyways. So God, help us to be the kind of church that welcomes people who are a mess. God, who acknowledges our own mess. Lord, knowing that you take us even as a mess, God. And you give us a message of hope, of peace, of comfort. Lord, and if there's anyone in this room today who has never taken that first step of placing their faith in what Jesus did for them on the cross, God, I pray that right now in this moment, right now, that you would tug on their heart, that you would move them to placing their faith in you. And so right now, if you would say that's you, if you feel like there's something happening on the inside, that you feel like God is pulling at your heart, I would tell you that's not new and that there's something actually happening there and that he wants to give you a new life. And so if that's you, I would just ask you to whisper this prayer to yourself as I pray it out loud. Because this is your moment. This is the free gift that God is giving you this Christmas to just reach out and take it. So if that's you, if you would just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to die for me. I admit that I'm a mess, that I've sinned in my life, and that I can't do anything about it, but I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me. I don't know what that means totally, but I commit my life to following you and to becoming more like Jesus and figuring it out 